0: Hello, guys! Welcome to this new episode of Little Brain's Big Topics. Well, speaking of big topics, today's topic is about the 11th of uh, September terrorist attacks that took place uh, uh, twenty week, twenty years, and one week ago from the from the day this podcast gets uploaded. I think. So, I I brought on brilliant journalist Bill Arkin to discuss the issues with us. Uh, so I'm I'm just going to give you an introduction to our guest, and the, I'll will this we'll discuss the topics. Uh, then we'll then we'll play the interview. So William M. Arkin. Is an American political commentator, best-selling author, journalist, activist, blogger, and former United States Army soldier. He he has previously served as a military affairs analyst for the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. So big deal, ladies and gentlemen, big deal. We're really honored to have him on today. His latest book is called on that day, where he describes the chain of events that took place on the 11th of September, 2001. So for the interview, we obviously discuss, we discuss everything 9-11 related. Um, we discuss uh, Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, the terrorists, how every detail about how they planned the attacks, how, the, how, how, uh, such educated people mm, what was their ideology why did they do such a horrendous act so we discuss all all those things um uh we we also discuss uh, the role of u.s foreign policy um and the and the u.s response the war on terror uh, we discuss the situation the current situation in afghanistan at the end so all in all a brilliant guest brilliant interview uh hope you guys enjoy it and if uh and yeah, make sure to make sure to sub like share subscribe if you if you enjoy our episodes get it to as many people as we can um uh, and yeah thanks yes so Why did you decide to write your book, your new book, on that day?
1: Well, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is obviously an important event, and it was, in fact, an event in which almost everyone in the news media felt obligated to look back and look forward as to what the meaning of 9-11 was and what the implications were. And um, I I actually wrote two books this year on 9-11, one a novel and one on that day. And the novel really explores the history of nine eleven more than the actual event tries to get into the mindset of the terrorists themselves tries to understand the motivations of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. It tries to understand uh, bin Laden and his charisma and his uh, his uh, following uh, uh, throughout the Muslim world. And um, so uh, I, after I wrote Uh, history in one act Um, I had this gigantic timeline of both pre 9-11 and 9-11 itself and I thought I would look to see whether there was some new information which had come out on 9-11 itself and indeed there was there had been a uh, the president's diary for that day had been declassified by the Bush library and there were other new documents which had come out which were interesting and um I really hadn't ever gone through the transcripts of all of the different, uh, uh, government, uh, command centers, which had uh, met on that day. And the nine eleven commission obviously was successful in trying many of them away from the government and they were still highly redacted, but still very interesting. And, uh, I decided that I should do a definitive timeline of the day itself and, uh, Uh, Little did I know that soon it it ballooned into a 350-page book. Um, And Public Affairs Press was kind enough to rush it into uh, production. And I think it will stand uh, today and uh, really forever as the best record of what happened on that day without any of the... uh, you know, without any of the name calling or any of the gut protection of the government that is either so common in the official world or is so common in the conspiracy and partisan world. So I wanted to really be in the middle. I wanted to really uh, lay out the facts and ask the questions as best that I could uh, and then thematically try to deal with some of the enduring issues that we faced in nine eleven and yet we faced again in Afghanistan withdrawal, we faced again in COVID, we faced again in the January 6th insurrection. And so I I really wanted to draw lessons from what we learned in uh nine at 9/11 and 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 then how those same habits and procedures of the government and our same handling of crises uh, continues to be uh, uh, something that dogs us right up until this year. So, uh, to me, uh, I wanted to make 9/11 more of a live issue than something that was just um, that's something that was just uh, uh, you know history and 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 a celebration of the American response, which is certainly uh, uh, worthy of commemoration, but it wasn't my focus. My focus was on what the government actually did, how bad information influenced what they were doing that day, and how uh, the problems of government response were muddled and confused, and the people themselves who were in charge were confused with what they should do and how to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, so in preparation for this interview, I tried to like look into. I just I, by by looking into, I just mean surface level reading Wikipedia pages, and there was a lot of Wikipedia pages just on nine eleven. That like, there was so much, like my head, my head started hurting. I was like, I can't comprehend this much. Like it's, it seems like. Yeah, so how difficult did you find it to gather all the information from all the different books, different records, different, and like come up with a clear, comprehensive picture?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I really tried to rely upon facts. So not speculation about what happened. At 9.07, this happened. And, and what it might mean, well, that's for others to interpret and to try to do additional work on. But overall, my intent was to really uh, focus on um, uh, was to focus on 9/11 and the facts that it were contained in government documents. And when I thought that the documents were flawed or the logs from that day were mistaken, not that somebody didn't write that this happened at 9:07 a.m but that it didn't happen at 907 a.m. So we now know that it didn't happen. Yo, know, yet this is the record of what they thought happened at 907 in the contemporaneous record. And so to me, uh you know, I've got a lot of experience dealing with gigantic data sets. I know how to read the documents, I know how to get the documents and um uh, there wasn't any doubt that I uh uh could do this, you know, there there have been other attempts to make uh, timelines and chronologies. What I was re- worried about was that I wouldn't have sufficient information on certain subjects, like continuity of government or the declaration of DEFCON 3, that was able to flesh out the story a little bit more than what we already know. And in fact, I was able to get that material by and large uh, there are still some gaps in our knowledge, but uh, but in terms of like, my hope would be that in the same way that political scientists and historians study the Cuban Missile Crisis as a as a uh, model of decision making and crisis, that that perhaps nine eleven itself replaces the Cuban Missile Crisis as a more modern example of uh, of of. An event that shook the world, and yet at the same time, you know, it's not really, um, it's not really very uh, well understood. Uh, uh, certainly by your generation, it's not well understood. I mean, uh, I know that.
0: Th- that certainly leads to my next question. Because so I think I was one, one or two years old when then events took place. Uh, so. Our generation, so we we are like the nine eleven world order generation, sort of, <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah. Could you, for those of us who ha- who weren't like really of age at the time, could you give us a brief summary of what actually happened on nine eleven?
1: Well, you know. There had already been a number of Al Qaeda attacks upon the United States and United States interests, and this is something that everyone has amnesia about. But you know, Al Qaeda had attacked two U.S. embassies in 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 Kenya and Tanzania uh, simultaneously in August 1998, and it was a spectacular terrorist attack, probably the single largest loss of life and and this kind of synchronized attack was was really uh, extraordinary and that kind of was the departure point for the U.S. government to begin to recognize that al-Qaeda was a, a real threat to the United States and and that was followed up by the attack upon a U.S. destroyer the USS Cole in Yemen in 2000 right before the election of George W. Bush and uh, again, quickly, those who were inside the government who had been working on terrorism issues knew that it was Al Qaeda. And, um, and, and the only reason why a, a retaliatory attack didn't occur was that it was so close to the election and President Clinton wanted to uh, defer that kind of engagement and decision until a new president came into office. Uh, Once the Bush administration came into office, it wasn't really focused on terrorism, really wasn't interested in terrorism. Uh, the, the, The national security titans, if you will, and I put that in quote, who were part of the Bush administration, Colin Powell, secretary of state, who was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dick Cheney, who was vice president, who was the former secretary of defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the secretary of defense, who was the former secretary of defense, Condoleezza Rice, who was the national security advisor who had been a Soviet expert at a high level within the State Department and in NSC. So you had all these people that were supposed to be tutoring the young George W. Bushes to the national security realities of the world. But the truth of the matter was that they just weren't focused on terrorism, they didn't take it seriously as a threat to the United States. And uh, they, they uh, were focused very much on Iraq and they were very f- much focused on uh, uh, Russia and China. So uh, when, you know, all during this time, let's remember, the first terrorists who were involved in the 9-11 attacks entered the United States in January 2000, 18 months before 9-11. And the pilots began their training in the United States in June 2000. So they were in the United States for more than a year, uh, attending flight school, uh, 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 living their lives. Um, and so so. this was a long-term project, uh, in, in many ways a very admirable uh, uh, managerial uh, effort on the part of Al Qaeda. I mean, they had to keep this secret and they had to keep it, you know, right in uh, out from under the eyes of the FBI and the CIA, right in the United States. So, eventually, the decision was made to attack. In September, uh, Mohammed Atta, who was the head of the uh, uh, the Al Qaeda group that was in the United States, sort of made the decision himself. He decided that uh, he wanted to have an attack after the U.S. government had come back to Washington from summer vacation. He wanted to have an attack after um, Labor Day uh, in the U.S. So in the first full work week after Labor Day, uh, uh, you know, in this in really what you have to say in hindsight is an admirable feat, uh, however much you hate it. Uh, You know, they boarded four different planes at three different airports, all of them long distance flights to the West Coast, and were able to more or less synchronize a set of attacks, two in New York and two in Washington, one of which was uh, the passengers overtook the plane and it crashed in Pennsylvania, uh, but the other hit the Pentagon. So the intended targets included the White House and the U.S. Capitol building, but Uh, For many reasons, Uh, the North and South Towers were hit at the World Trade Center, and then the Pentagon was hit. And because the North and South Towers were hit, there was a cumulative um, uh, heat and debris and uh, inflagration of the fuel and a fire that ultimately led to the collapse of both buildings. Overall, 3,030 people died uh, on 9-11 and uh uh and 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 probably it was a 2700 or so american citizens and another 250 or so uh uh foreigners who were working in the world trade center
0: i mean it is truly crazy to me how people like when i think of terrorists i think of poorly educated i think of people who were brainwashed in like a uh, probably in some mountains in Afghanistan or somewhere i don't think of people who attend flight uh, flight to schools for 18 months in
1: the us well i mean there's two things that you have to understand i mean one is the history of revolution in in the 20th century uh, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, etc. These these are people from the upper classes, uh, well educated uh, uh, people from the upper classes, you know, uh, and, and that repeated itself throughout the nineteen seventies in uh, the Bader Meinhof gang in 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 Germany and the Red Brigades in Italy. Um, so this notion that uh, everyone is is just a brainwashed automaton of radicalized muslim uh, belief is really false. And uh and in this particular case, uh the the four men who were uh, selected as the pilots on 9/11, they were all college graduates, they were all uh, uh you know people who were in the engineering world. Um and really what we have to ask ourselves, what's the most important question to ask is, you know, how were they motivated to, to give their lives for a cause? What, 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 what was the motivation for them? And, and I explore that quite a bit in history in one act. And one of the things that I come to the conclusion is that, um, you know, here's three of the four, which were from the so-called Hamburg cell, right? So men who had been, uh, uh, one from Egypt, one from Lebanon, one from the United Arab Emirates, they were all studying in Hamburg, and they became radicalized at the mosque in Hamburg, but, but it, it was precipitated by things that were going on in the world. Uh, they were very much uh, uh, outraged by uh, the Israeli uh, bombings in Lebanon in 1996. And uh, this was one of the acts of their radicalization. But overall, they also saw the West encroaching upon the Islamic world. And they believed that Osama bin Laden uh, was a a leader and a teacher who had a clear understanding of the importance of uh, getting the U.S. military out of the Middle East, of stopping the sanctions and bombing against Iraq, of thwarting Israel's uh, continued uh, control over what was going on in Lebanon, uh, and and a general sense that the West was destroying Islam, that the re- that the religion that they believed in uh, was being destroyed by globalization and being destroyed by by Western encroachment, and uh, you know, as men who also lived in the West in Hamburg, they saw discrimination, they saw. Um, uh, the objectification of Islamic men, uh, and then I think there was another factor, which is that as they can, as they got to the end of their own schooling, uh, they realized that there was nowhere to go, that they really couldn't return home and have a fruitful life, that they would have to uh, uh, become subject to the to the to the strictures of each of their societies, um, and so here they were. Uh, strangers in a strange land. And then in addition to that, they have really felt like they had no future. So that is the ingredient for which people are willing to give their lives. And, uh, you know, those suicide bombers is, is is the most extreme example of that. I think when you scratch the surface of, uh, of any um, uh, non-conforming, uh, organization or terrorist group, you find the same thing that people believe that there is no future, and that the ba- greatest contribution that they can make to to their cause is giving their lives uh, on behalf of that cause. Uh, none of which I'm saying to justify, but but what was crazy after 9-11 itself, where I was a, a reporter and a journalist at NBC, was was that. To say any of the things I just said would have you shouted out by, oh my God, you're blaming America for what happened. And it was like, no, I'm not blaming America for what happened, but I'm trying to understand what motivated them. Because now, if we're going to undertake a war on terrorism, a war that has taken place during your entire life, um, we might want to have some prospect of winning. And, and winning means that you either eradicate terrorism, uh, in a brutal way. And that is not the American way of war. And it's not the NATO way of war, or you change their minds. And that is fo- proven to be a, a, a foolish endeavor, uh, because the stimuli for people to join Al Qaeda, for people to join now ISIS, for people to join Al Shabaab, uh, Boko Haram, uh, and 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 al qaeda and isis affiliates all over the world is the fact that the united states is continuing to war against terrorism and what they perceive to be war against islam and so we you know there, there's a saying that we're you know we're creating more terrorists than we're killing uh, but it it isn't untrue and so And so understanding their mindset and understanding what we might have to do to, uh, to uh, uh, moderate that mindset or, or uh, reform Islam, uh, you know, the, those are things that um, we've never gotten to because, because we've been so focused on a mission. And of course, that mission was to eradicate Al Qaeda and destroy the Taliban. And we now have achieved neither. Uh, In fact, we've watched a larger terrorist organization, ISIS, emerge from the Al Qaeda defeat. uh, So that now we can't really say, after 20 years of fighting, uh, that we've left the region or any country in better security shape than it was before 2001. And we can't really say that we've achieved our goals, uh, despite whatever happy administrations would like to publicly pronounce. So, how was
0: Al-Qaeda formed in the first place? Uh, And initially, the U.S. was on the side of bin Laden, right?
1: No, I don't think that's actually true. I think that during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, which took place from 1979 until 1988, bin Laden was one of many different groups fighting against the Soviets. He anchored what was called the Arab Brigade or the Arab Fighters, that is men who had been uh, attracted by uh, the the defense of Afghanistan against the, let's be clear, the Christian invaders. Uh, And, and, and so, but the mujahideen, the actual ha- Afghan uh, fighters, were the were the real fighters, and they were the ones that ultimately uh, extracted enough blood from from the Soviet soldiers to force Gorbachev to make the decision to withdraw Soviet troops, much in the same way that the United States did this year. Bin Laden was a sideshow, a, an important one because. Uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states uh, sent a lot of young men to fight uh, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, either to uh, uh, conduct jihad, a personal jihad, or uh, because they supported the fight against the Soviets. Bin Laden was a sort of leader of, of that group and became the charismatic head uh, but it wasn't Al Qaeda then. It was it was a, a vast uh, c- a collection of Arab men from fr- throughout the Arab world and throughout the Islamic world, uh, many from Philippines, from Indonesia, from uh, non-Arab countries, Pakistan, etc. Uh, so um, uh, Bin Laden emerged from the Soviet occupation as a leader, and then uh, went on to protest the U.S. Uh, 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 a, t- a war against Saddam in 1991 went on to uh, uh, continue to build an organization that, by by 1995 or 1996, was ready to start focusing on what they considered to be the main enemy, which was the United States of America. I mean, if if Russia had continued to um, and 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 Russia, let's be clear. I mean, the the the, the Muslim uh, fighting in, in Chechnya and in Dagestan and in other places uh, was also supported by al-Qaeda and this same cadre of men who had fought in Afghanistan, as was the protection of the Bosnian Muslim uh, population, which was fighting against the Serbs and the former Yugoslavia. So it wasn't just the United States, but it became the United States as they uh, gathered strength, and as Bin Laden began to uh, uh, focus his attention. That's really interesting. Um,
0: so how did, so did the uh, sort of Wahhabi fundamentalist ideology enter Afghanistan through the? Through the mujah, through the um, so the the from Saudi Arabia, through the network of Bin Laden.
1: Well, you know, it it, there is an important factor associated with Wahhabi uh, uh, ideology, which is one of the strains of Islam, and it's you know, and given that Saudi Arabia is the Location of Mecca and Medina, and and sort of the heart of Islam, the birthplace of Islam, it holds a special place in the Islamic world. And so, when the Saudi government itself has an official ideology, Wahhabism, then uh, this has influence. It's not. It's not. It's only really adapted amongst the Sunni population. It's really only adapted uh, in certain places. And and I would say that Bin Laden was. Uh, well, first he was a Saudi. Uh, second, he was uh, sympathetic to the, uh, uh, the the Wahhabi ideology, but he was also against the Saudi Saudi government and the Saudi royal family. So, uh, I think it was more the some of the teachings that were the underpinning of, of the Wahhabi ideology, the the rejection of uh, of of uh, music and the rejection of art and the rejection of um, of uh, modern ways, the, the desire to live under Sharia law, uh, etc. The, the, these were parts of bin Laden's uh, ideology, but he had a broader political ideology as well. He was against the Saudi uh, government and the Saudi regime because he uh, thought that they were uh, weak, and uh, that there was great wealth in Saudi Arabia, yet there was still a, a poverty in the country, and that there was poverty in the neighboring countries like Yemen and and uh, uh, Djibouti, and uh, uh, and and not only that, but uh, uh, that the Saudi government was really just interested in the perpetuation of the Saudi royal family, and so it was a combination of the Wahhabi teachings, which were part of Bin Laden's upbringing. Together with uh, more radical ideals, Salafi teachings, and uh, more radical ideals about uh, the political dimensions of, uh, of of the assault on Islam. I mean, what what Bin Laden articulated before 9/11 was uh, Islam is under assault. It's under assault from Russia in Chechnya and in the Caucasus. It's under assault from the Serbs and the Christians in, in Yugoslavia, it's under assault in, uh, Palestine. It's, 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 and it's under assault in Iraq as a result of the no fly zones and the war against Saddam Hussein. So that was his worldview. That's what he saw. And that was not necessarily a, a Saudi official worldview, but it, it showed that there were strains within the Saudi, uh, Uh, ideology. And not only that, but strains within Islam. I mean, we forget in our modern society, because we're so stupid, that uh, there is a difference between Sunni and Shia. And there is a difference between uh, South Asian uh, Islam as practiced in, say, for instance, India, and uh, Islam as practiced in Saudi Arabia, that there's a difference between Islam as practiced in North Africa and places like Morocco or Algeria. And and uh in Saudi Arabia, and yet it, there's a kind of monotheic uh control that Saudi Arabia exerts and uh and and propagates and proselytizes and funds uh that that one would have thought in the modern era would have created a kind of uh, uh well Protestantism if you will a split uh uh in which there could be room for a modern interpretation of islam that was in fact the personification of uh of uh friendship and love and peace that s- so many claim is what islam is about but but it really isn't because there's no strain within islam that sort of uh has uh, that as its officialness and uh, saudi is while speaking a fancy game Uh, You know, are covertly financing terrorist organizations, harboring terrorists on their own soil, uh, propagating uh, radical Islam all over the world, funding mosques uh, and controlling mosques, etc. And there really is no alternative. So I'm surprised that there hasn't been a reformation, that there hasn't been a Protestant movement within Islam uh, that uh, has split. The Islamic world between sort of the traditionalists and the modernists, uh, but clearly uh, that's something that is needed.
0: Absolutely, um, and uh, in the Shia was kind of the Protestant of Islam yes. at some point but now because of uh, because of the 1957 coup post that now she has become fundamentalist as well so th- there is yeah. really not much of a difference between like Iran and Saudi Arabia in their interpret in their fundamentalist interpretations
1: yes but again as you well know Iran is not an arab country and uh uh it's a vibrant <laughs> uh large economy with a with a quasi-democracy, and um, uh, it's a very different society with a different history than the Gulf States and uh, the Arab world. There is a sense of inferiority in the Arab world, I think, that doesn't exist in Iran and doesn't exist in in India and other places. So uh, though uh, Islam in its original uh, personification in the 600s and 700s, was able to spread uh, Islam from Morocco all the way to from Morocco and Spain all the way to Indonesia and the Philippines um, uh, so into Southeast Asia so this arc of of Islam which conquered much of that part of the world you know it 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 slowly became either suppressed by colonialism or uh, or kind of isolated within isolated societies. Well, that wasn't Iran. Uh, Iran had a different history. And, uh, and to me, uh, when you look at the different countries, like for instance, in Egypt, there are animist elements associated with Islam that don't exist in other countries. They still, uh, have, uh, amulets and, and, and symbols of, of, of ancient Egyptian, uh, Tradition with that doesn't exist in other countries, but also there are elements of uh, of uh, ancient practices that persist in places like Iran, in 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 uh, Western Afghanistan, in uh, um, uh, southern Pakistan, uh, 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 and even in places like Yemen. I mean, we talk about the Houthis as if they're some like uh, modern. Uh, invention uh, when the Houthi people come from 700 AD and and they have been an enclave of Shia uh, belief which is uniquely Houthi with its own traditions and its own practices that goes back to the beginning of Islam and today we just make them out as they as if they are geopolitical allies of Iran and that's all we need to know and uh, and so we're not we're not really well, we're just not interested in this part of the world. I say as Americans, we're not interested in this part of the world. And um, it's taken me many years myself to understand this part of the world, both as a result of extensive travel in the Middle East, but also from study. So, uh, you know, it's it's sad that uh, we don't teach 9-11 in our schools. We don't teach... Uh, uh that there's a whole part of the world that we just ignore the history of it and uh uh and and ultimately that's uh, that's the makings of a uh, a society which is divided and i mean speaking of war and terror
0: i read this last night on wikipedia i was really shocked so since the beginning of war on ter- terror beginning with 911 attacks there has been 8 trillion dollars spent nearly 1 million people killed and some millions more displaced it seems like it it's not a war worth fighting considering like the human cost and the actual cost <laughs> so what how did this come to this such a i don't know useless self perpetuating cycle came to existence
1: well first of all you know war is a is a human endeavor it's it's historic and it's never ending and um the modern era of war is very different than world war 2 world war 1 and a- ancient wars and we should recognize that uh uh the I'm not sure that I could say to you with any confidence that I know how many civilians have died in 20 years of war but it was it's a hell of a lot fewer than the number of civilians who died in pre precision warfare in World War 2 in Vietnam in in, in Korea and in, in in World War 1 so uh, there are advances that we make in 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 warfare that become more precise, that protect the civilian population more that uh, that endeavors to have less civilian harm. Those are real. Uh, The problem with the war on terrorism is we haven't achieved our goals. Uh, This strategy of trying to kill terrorists one at a time, especially to go after the leaders, so-called high value targets uh, doesn't work. And um, So, we set out after 9 11 to eradicate Al Qaeda. We didn't do that. We set out after 9 11 to depose the Taliban. They're now back in power. We set out after 9 11 to have a global war on terror. And we have more organizations and more terrorists today than there were in 2001. So, it's time for us to reevaluate the war. But I wouldn't say you reevaluate it on the basis of cost, it's a factor. You reevaluate it on the basis of whether or not you 're achieving your ad- objectives, and we 're not achieving our objectives and that 's the most important point for people to understand. Um, you know we spend uh, eight hundred uh billion dollars a year on the military in the United States, uh probably more than a trillion in the whole national security establishment in the United states and uh so, when you say eight trillion dollars, or you know whatever number you want to uh, pick up, I think the Pentagon itself says like one point five trillion uh, it, it doesn't really matter because because if we spent a dollar and we haven't achieved our objectives, we would want to ask ourselves uh, what what is a better strategy for which to achieve our objectives? What should we be doing? And many people. Maintain the position that the best strategy is to uh you know accompany the military effort with nation building with humanitarian a- a- affairs with countering violence violent extremism with programs to convince people that they shouldn't be radical uh and and all of those are important, and all of those are are useful, but they haven't achieved their goals either. And so in some ways we need to just go back to, this is my opinion, we need to go back to treating terrorism as a law enforcement matter. You know, We should have good security and we should have good law enforcement. And um, those are the things that ultimately are going to thwart terrorism. And and yes, there will be some terrorists who will get through. There will be plots that will be successful. Uh, There will be people who continue to want to do damage to the West. But looking at it in the long term, if we stopped warring everywhere, we might influence the next generation, that it's not so important for them to attack the West, that, that, they, that they want to focus their time and their energy in the development of their own countries and their own region and their own religion. And so it's unfortunate that what we've done is we've created this divide uh, between the Judeo-Christian world and and, and and the Islamic world. And it's unfortunate that we have no program by which we can look at this in the long term and say, what is it we're trying to achieve and what would be the best way to achieve it? And I was just thinking... So you- if
0: that $8 trillion was spent on building schools and hospitals, do you not think there would have been a better chance they said, oh, they're actually not bad people. Look, they're building schools and hospitals for us.
1: Um, Well, I mean, you know, more importantly, let's look at it at a micro level. So we, we think that probably the war in Afghanistan over 20 years has cost about $800 million. And, um, uh, And I think that if that money had been spent on actually uh, building the institutions within Afghan society that were going to be uh, persistent and vibrant, then the attractiveness of the Taliban would have uh, uh, been lesser. And also, and this was always a problem in Afghanistan. And of course, Washington can't really say it because it's, it's inflammatory. Uh, but, you know, there's ter- terrible corruption in Afghan society. Well, what builds corruption? The availability of money. And so, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the money that the, what the United States spent or gave to Afghanistan and the, and a lot of the money that the NATO nations and the Western Europeans gave to Afghanistan, you know, didn't go to the places and the people and the purposes that were intended so it's always nice to be naive and say we should spend it on schools and housing and health care, et cetera. But, uh, but then we have to figure out a way to actually do that. I mean, what we, what we leave behind in Afghanistan today is certainly better roads. But why are there better roads? So that the military can get around the country better. And why are there better airfields? So the military can get around the country better. And why are there better? Uh, I mean, the Afghan military has a magnificent selection of barracks and command centers and uh, gymnasiums and uh, all of the accoutrements of military uh, force that has been built by the United States and the West. And now, well, I guess the Taliban are going to be in better physical shape because they have all these gyms. Uh, but but that's the reality that so much of what was spent was also with an eye on enhancing military capability, even the telecommunication system in Afghanistan was built with an eye on being able to intercept phone calls, be, to having a a fabric of 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 uh, a cell phone telecommunication system throughout the country that was going to make it easier and better to spy on the Afghan people. So you know, we we have this uh, contradictory objective. On the one hand, we want to Nation build, but on the other hand, amidst a war, uh, the priority is uh, building up the military capacity, both our capacity and the capacity of the Afghan military and the Afghan special forces. And uh, what are your thoughts on?
0: biden's withdrawal from afghanistan i mean people blame it on biden a lot but it was a pretty much bipartisan project from tr- starting with trump ending with biden um and you know we, we saw like mike pompeo <laughs> shook hands with uh with the taliban guy so it's it doesn't seem to me like it was a, like it was his decision it was a i think it must have been some sort of pentagon changing foreign policy directions Making deals with. So, what do you think of what went on in the. And, di, and did, they, did the U.S. know how quickly the government was going to collapse?
1: Well, so first of all, it didn't start with the Trump administration, it started with the Obama administration. Oh. I mean, they're the ones who started to reduce the number of forces in Afghanistan and, and tried to replace boots on the ground with technological capabilities which would supplant them. So the long road to getting out of Afghanistan probably began a decade ago, uh, and certainly the Trump administration negotiated a peace settlement. But uh, but I don't think that the Trump administration is going to be noted for its competence, and so they weren't really able to get anywhere. The you know Pompeo shaking hands with the head of the Taliban, uh, the negotiator uh, certainly is a jarring picture today, but. I mean, ultimately, uh, you have to negotiate with your enemy and you have to figure out an outcome that I mean, the the only justification for war that the entire fabric of just war theory is is that you fight so that you can restore peaceful relations. And uh, and that means you fight for a, a purpose and you fight in a way that does not close the door to the restoration of peaceful relations. Um, I, I, I think that uh, Biden uh, wanted to end the war, and one of the first things he said uh, when he made the decision to uh, withdraw U.S. forces, this is back in April, was there's no amount of military that's going to solve this problem. That was the most important thing that he articulated uh, and then probably forgot it the next day. But uh, uh, that is the truth. That's the bottom line. The United States is not going to make Afghanistan into something that it doesn't want to be made into. And uh, this is a highly balkanized country, which has got uh, Uzbek and Tajik and Turkmen uh, influences in the north, and it has Sunni influences in the center, and it has uh, Shia and Pashtun influences in the south, uh, Iranian influences in the west, uh, uh, Baluchi interests in the far south. So it's It's not a coherent country in some ways it probably should be four or five different countries um, uh, for there to be peace uh, but But I think that what the Biden administration chose to do uh wasn't wrong uh Did they fail in the intelligence world yes, but we but that's like a given you know anytime we have a crisis in American society, the first law of that crisis is. We had information which told us something, then we didn't pay attention to it. <laughs> so uh, that's the first law of a crisis, is that there's always a failure to connect the dots. There's always a failure to uh, to uh, understand the very intelligence that we possess. And then second, I think that kind of in this decade of reducing boots on the ground uh, and, and f- and, and refocusing the real effort of the war on terrorism against ISIS in Iraq and Syria was that people just sort of got tired of Afghanistan, got tired of the war in Afghanistan, and um, uh, and so they saw what was going to happen anyhow. Uh, you know, when Biden announced in in March in April that he was going to withdraw U.S. troops. The number was 2,500. Do you think 2,500 Americans were keep holding the line against the Taliban? No, the Taliban had been gaining power over many years, and uh, and so uh, and and the United States was ag- agnostic, if not even uh, uh, confounded by that, because the objective in Afghanistan was to. Uh, destroy terrorism and not to destroy the Taliban, not to fight the Taliban. And even though they gave assistance to the Afghan government to do that, uh, if the Afghan government was not coherent and if it didn't have a nation and a nation and national control, it it was, an, it was going to be an unsuccessful endeavor. So, yes, the images of the last month in Afghanistan have been jarring. Uh, and uh, and the future of Afghanistan looks bleak and uh, the the plight of women and 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 minorities and progressives is miserable. But that doesn't mean that the United States should have kept the military there. It, it doesn't mean that um, that we should have continued to tread water while we knew that this tsunami was coming anyhow. And and so I think ultimately Biden uh, affirmed and carried out the decision, which has been common to the last three administrations. And uh, and I think though Biden will take the blame for it, if if the end of the war in Afghanistan is the beginning of the end of the war in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, Burkina Faso. Uh, uh, uh Nigeria uh Burundi Uganda Burkina uh Cameroon uh, then uh it will have been an achievement but but now the war on terrorism has has expanded into so many places uh that Afghanistan is a minor is a minor uh, bump in the road
0: it seems to me like so with with Vietnam the us obviously was drafting people so you, you had you had to go to the military then with afghanistan and iraq they made it voluntary to to create less objections but then they realized there's still people are dying coffins are coming back home so now with the new technology with the drone tech they said okay we're going to move away from human sending humans we're just going to have sort of um, we're going to do like targeted drone strikes, we're going to do sort of, um, you know, proxy forces. Uh, That's what I've heard from many people. Do you agree with that uh, assessment?
1: Well, the volunteer military started in 1973 after Vietnam. So it wasn't invented for Afghanistan and Iraq. But part of having a professional military, a volunteer military, is that... uh, Every human life within that military is very precious because you're making a great investment in your soldiers and your sailors and Marines uh, in a way that wasn't the case in a period of a draft or a tremendous mobilization of 11 million people like we saw in in World War II. So um, the nature of the American military was already changing uh, and uh the 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 willingness of the american public to uh accept uh, friendly casualties american casualties uh, was already uh changing it was already uh eroding uh not because of iraq and afghanistan but because people intuited that these were not vital interests of the united states i mean if it, i imagine that if the united states had to go to war against north korea or China or russia uh, th- there would be a sense that uh, this was a a, 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 a nation saving endeavor and would, would it would have a tremendous amount of support. but I think the war on terrorism ironically never really had the support of the Americans. Of course, the obvious initial retaliation in afghanistan in in, uh, in two thousand and one had support, but I think as it went on. Uh, people were not necessarily in agreement. I mean, the Senate was basically split half and half uh, when the Iraq war came about in 2003. So in two years, uh, people had already grown tired. And then I think there's another phenomenon that is worth talking about. And that is that as the US military continued its way of war, which was to minimize friendly and civilian casualties, to focus more on drones and air power and special operations forces and less on conventional boots on the ground the they achieved the goal of reducing uh, civilian harm and and reducing the number of military casualties, which made the American public pay less attention to the war, which gave the Pentagon more autonomy, which allowed the Pentagon to go into other countries and start fighting in Yemen and syria and 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 Somalia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so the irony of this American way of war is that fewer and fewer people are engaged. And the irony of the volunteer force is that fewer and people, fewer lives of Americans are affected. I mean, the Army and the Marine Corps requires one hundred and twenty five thousand uh, people a year in order to replenish its ranks. Well, one hundred and twenty-five thousand out of twenty-four million eighteen to twenty-four year olds in America—it's a tiny number. It does, you know, the military doesn't affect most people's lives in any way, and so uh, as the American public has grown weary of paying attention, uh, uh, I think that the end result has been that it, it allows the military to o- operate more autonomously, and they're Primary objective, though I don't think this is how they see it, is to minimize the accident, the industrial accident, if you will, of war uh, that would bring attention, public attention to the war. They, they don't want people to die uh, because that's when people pay attention. And so if they can create a style of warfare in which a minimum of people die, uh, then they also can have the autonomy and, and, and the ability. Uh, to carry out what they think is important. And um, uh, unfortunately, we live in a society in which the military and the national security community decides what's important, rather than a society in which the people decide what's important. And this has gotten worse and worse. And now we're really at a crisis, because in the news this week, as an example, is General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, going behind the back of the White House uh, to contact the Chinese in, in terms of uh, uh, making clear that uh, that Trump was not going to be allowed to do uh, anything inflammatory or, or aggressive against them. And uh, we know that uh, a lot of concern within the national security community that there was a potential for Donald Trump to declare martial law after the elections, uh, prompted them also to in, to be insubordinate and passive aggressive in paying attention to the president, and I think that this case study of uh, the military believing that it needs to protect the country from the President of the United States is a very bad precedent, but it really gives us an insight into the power uh, the, the power of the of the national security establishment.
0: If we are to take away one lesson from the events of nine eleven twenty 20 years later, what would it be?
1: Well, the one lesson that I draw as an American is that no one was really held accountable. That the director of the CIA continued to serve, that the head of the FBI continued to serve, that No one in the Bush administration took responsibility for what happened. An airport screener wasn't even losing his job. So we created this condition of retaliation and revenge associated with 9-11, but not accountability. And I think that ultimately um, that has been the seed of the dissatisfaction of so many with the American government, the seed of, of uh, a feeling on the part of uh, so many in America that the government is corrupt, that the government is only interested in itself, that Washington is only interested in itself, and that this seed has been at the root of uh, anti-vaccines, of uh, of of. Uh, uh, of the insurrection on January sixth, of the creation of a right-wing uh, so-called terrorist groups in America, uh, but also that that the world has become more topsy-turvy in the United States in the sense that uh, you know now you have Republicans who are arguing against endless war, Democrats who are arguing in favor of it. Uh, Republicans who are arguing against censorship, Democrats who are arguing in favor of it, you know, we just live in this society right now in which there's no decent public discourse and there is uh, uh, a confusion over what the American ideals actually are. And there is a, a lack of uh, trust in government and the news media and other traditional institutions, uh, that I think uh, we, we're going to have to mount a very long road uh, to coming back to some normalcy in our country.
0: Thank you very much, Bilorkin.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Brilliant.